Well, hello, everyone. It is that Williams guy here for yet another episode. And joining me today will be Brian Eastridge in this totally random episode, which we have nothing planned. How you doing, bro? Good, man. A little tired from uh, a week and a half of road trip adventures. Yeah, it's uh, we've both been hitting the road pretty hard here lately. Yeah. Yeah, and this one, that Dallas, man, that took it out of me. That heat just, it was punishing, but it was a great block, so. Yeah, uh, of course, you know, I drove all the way to Texas and back and got rear-ended 20 minutes from my house. Yeah, I yeah. forgot. How, they going to get you a new truck, or? Oh, no, no, it's just, there's not much damage to the truck. There's a dent to the bumper, and it's pushed a little bit, but it's a 2007. So, uh, with well over a hundred thousand miles on it, I'm not really worried about the the, the truck. It, it's yeah. drivable. It's drivable. I know that there's damage to the bumper, but unless you just sit there and stare at it, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not glaringly obvious. Right. And, uh, for the most part, uh, I'm okay. I had a little bit of whiplash, and I've had a couple of, of uh, trips to the chiropractor, and. Um, God didn't hit me too hard. Uh, I was stopped at a, a, a traffic light, and he was slowing down to stop and apparently looked down at his radio. Yeah. And, Rut row. Yeah. And well, there we have it. Well, glad there was no injuries. Um, yeah, we. I had a pretty uneventful drive back uh, and then turned right around a couple of days later and drove back to Dallas for another event. So I, you know, bulky keeps saying he's moving up here. I'm like, why don't I just move down there? Right. <laughs> well, Texas doesn't have state income tax. does it? Nope. <laughs> but they make Might up for best. it in other ways. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's gotta be a catch somehow. Yeah. Cost of living's a little higher down there, but. But yeah, all well, it, would all, be in, it would be in Dallas, but if you went out into the country somewhere with it, it's still pretty sad. Property taxes and stuff are a little steeper down there, but okay. yeah, they, they get you one way or the other. You're not going to keep your money. It's <laughs> the government. That's what the government does. Government does. Well, I guess we should tell everybody why we're, we were both in Dallas last week. Uh, we both attended Eric Gelhouse's Pistol Mounted Optics Instructor Course. Yeah, the PMO course, uh, in PMO instructor block that he wrote for uh, California Post. I believe some of that is uh, the transition course, the train the trainer for the gun sight cadre. They're doing the Red Dot 250. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was comprehensive for two and a half days. So. Of course, I, I was out there earlier in the week. I taught a contract course for a Texas state agency, and that, that got me to Texas, and it just happened to coincide with the same week that uh, Eric was doing his class. And so I just stayed over, and we had a fun-filled weekend of an excellent instructor course followed by even more excellent dining. Oh, man. Night. Yeah, every night, man, it was like we were hitting home runs on the, on the chow. Uh, I still have had a couple of dreams about that that uh, heart eight ribeye. A couple of times I went to bed and woke up thinking, you know, I'd really like one of those about right now. It's but, been a long time since I've had a really great steak in a restaurant. 
and I was sitting there eating that. I'm like, I don't want this one to end. I wish that I gotten the, the, the bigger one. Bigger one, yeah. <laughs> so Eric and I both were like, man, we should have upsized this. Like, but 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 it was yeah. good. And and you know, the the old standard for Dallas Pistol Club is Babe's Chicken. You gotta get yeah. to Babe's Chicken. Yeah. Um got in a we got in a good round at Babe's Chicken. And then after you left, uh me, Monty. Me, Monty, Eric, Bill, and Chuck went to a Korean barbecue on Sunday night after you guys split, and it was fantastic. Little weird, very good. Um, so I well, say no, weird, I weird. Yeah. Not like not like the food was weird. Just yeah. the layout of the table and like this guy's reaching over you to cook your food in front of you. It was kind of cool. I'd never been to one. I'd been to, I'd been to a couple of different styles of Korean barbecue, but that one was, that one was really, really good. So, well, you know, Sunday night when my class concluded, I had to drive back to Georgia, so I cut and ran. But uh, I had a a very good experience there. I stopped at a place called Brisket Love in East Texas, just off I twenty. And when you you know the directions include a farm to market road and a county road. And you pull up and it's a gravel parking lot and a tin roof, you know you're probably gonna be okay. Then you walk in and there's a cute sassy waitress dancing along to clearly what were they tapped into my Spotify playlist somehow. <laughs> and, uh, so lots of Shane Smith and the Saints and Chris and Chris Stapleton and and the like. And I go up and they have cobbler and got some blackberry cobbler and Quite frankly, the last blackberry cobbler I've had that even approached as good as this was, I went out with a bucket, picked the blackberries, and took them to my grandmother's house. Right. So it, it was it was a good, good cobbler. Great brisket. Very good dining experience there. Yeah, I'm Texas, man. I, I have an affinity for Texas cuisine because, uh-huh. you know, it covers my my two basic food groups, which is like Mexican food and tacos and meat. So, I mean, how does it? And, and they do it well everywhere. So, uh, but well, yeah, this was and it, this course was almost like a TACCON and like instructor yeah. train up or something, you know. I joked one night sitting in the lobby that we needed to take a picture of all of us there and then post it in the TAC grind group and go either we're really early or you guys are really late, one or the other. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that was kind of cool. And I, I was really glad that uh, Chuck got to make make it down there. So yeah. he called me. He's like, dude, I'm on a fast turnaround. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but he did. And, uh, and then Haney McMood. Uh, down there repping for some t- a Texas LE agency there uh, showed up. So uh, a lot of good, it, it always puts me at ease to go to a course like that when you know the gun handling proficiency of everybody around you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to worry about some tomfoolery on one end of the line or the other. It's just, you just get to go and do, and it, it's, I feel like I get a lot more out of courses that way than when I go to some and I don't know who anybody is. So I'm kind of, yeah. you know, doing the head on a swivel, <laughs> constantly scanning the line to make sure nothing's pointed at me, you know, kind of thing. But that was, that was excellent. I mean, the, the group of people that were there, it was just, it was just solid. So, 
yeah, there, there were 12 students in the class and there were only two of them that I did not previously know or know of. Mm-hmm. Um, to take the class, you had to either be a Rangemaster Advanced Certified Instructor, which means you've gone through at least the second uh, level Rangemaster Instructor class, or you had to be a Certified LE5 Instructor. So everyone in there, the, you know, the, the price of admission was you already had to be pretty squared away. Yeah, it, and it was it was not an entry level pistol class. There was no marksmanship coaching. Like everybody there knew what they were doing, and that was was refreshing uh, because it really took away the X factor of can this person shoot or are we going to be chasing marksmanship and fundamental errors and then get nothing out of the red dot course, if that makes sense. So, and there was none, it was like, all right, X number of rounds go and everybody yeah. shoot. And it was like, okay, moving on. Um, so I'm going to say that less politely than you said it. There was no looking at anybody going, dude, you're an instructor course. <laughs> Yeah, you, you do know this is an instructor level. Yeah, there was definitely none of that. Um, and Eric presented. Uh, oh shoot, I got a delivery on my front porch. I'll be right back. Sure. <laughs> while while Brian is uh, stepping away to get his delivery, I will point out that uh, this was what Eric phrased as a hybrid model um, while you had to be a range master advanced certified instructor or an LE instructor to attend uh, the class was not presented as a complete LE instructor course or a private citizen course it was what Eric called a hybrid model because he wanted to offer a course that if you were a law enforcement and fire instructor there that was like wanting to formulate policy you know, take it back to your range. Hey, look, this is what the policy we need. These are the standards. This is the training program we need to instill. You got that out of it. If you were a private citizen, or as Eric phrases them, decent normal human beings, um, you the class was a benefit to you. There really wasn't ever a time in which uh, the decent normal human being could like switch off and go, eh, you know, this this part isn't for me. Yeah, I thought I did a really good job with that. Yeah, that was um, that was one of the big takeaways I got was just that, you know, policy, how to apply that in a use of force, I don't want to say continuum, but how to how to frame up integrating that tool into, you know, your your department's use of force policy uh, and how to maximize it when you do that. Now, I currently don't have to worry about an agency anymore. So that's, that's kind of refreshing, but, uh, but there were some considerations cause you know, I do on occasion get called to consult on, Hey, check this body camera video out and tell, tell us what you think or what's your, your, your two cents or, and which not that I do that on the regular, but I think if the training gets pitched like the way that Eric was shaping it, it has potential to do a lot of good in the long, the long run. Um, it's not just a short-term solution 
you know, or band-aid for marksmanship programs and agencies. So, but at least not the way he taught it. <laughs> right. so. And we're going to have a discussion in general tonight of instructor courses, not necessarily this instructor course, mm-hmm. but there's several things from this course that kind of set the stage uh, for other things we're going to get into. Uh, Brian has published a written course review on his Patreon site that is free to view. Uh, I have written a review that will be coming out in the next Range Master newsletter. So there will be two um, two written reviews of, of Eric's course specifically uh, out there where you can get more information on his course, but also I just wanted to phrase that we're, we're going to piggyback up of that to go into some other discussion. Um, we hope. <laughs> That's the only thing we plan. Hey, what do you want to talk about? What about this? Okay. Uh, I'm Bill O'Reilly, man. Do it live. Just do it live. Right. Just, just flip the switch and we'll go wild. Um, One thing I want to point out, because as you were talking about there with the use of force policy, Eric's class pays specific attention to, you know, rule two and rule four. Rule two, you know, I'll just say that's in contrast to some of the other pistol-mounted optic instructor courses that are out there, uh, at least from published material that I have seen on those courses, not necessarily that I've taken them myself. Um, although there is one manufacturer-based optics course that I've taken in which they did kind of hit on the same thing. And that's this whole notion that pistol-mounted optics are going to reduce mistake-of-fact shootings because as you're looking through the optic and or you're using the optic instead of iron sights, you're focused on the person, not the sight. And so you will recognize more quickly that whether it's a gun or a knife coming out of there or a cell phone or wallet coming out of a person's pocket or waistline, that you'll be able to stop a shooting that's in progress. I don't think on my soapbox here that that is feasible. I don't think that, you, for one, you should not be pointing a firearm at someone that you are not justified in intending to shoot. And number two, I don't believe that uh, you can stop the decision to shoot once you've already made it and begun that process, recognizing that the facts have changed quickly enough to stop it in the way that it's being presented. And I'll throw that to you, Brian. Yeah, I... I saw this uh, when rifle optics came around that, you know, guys were running guns and eyeballs. I remember hearing that even guns and eyeballs, man, like you're running your gun in front of your eyes. And I'm like, you know, maybe in Iraq. Okay. I mean, let's put a little context to it. Maybe, maybe third world country. And I get it. Okay. Get it. Totally get it. Um, here not so much and i think a lot of the mistake of fact shootings that we saw pretty well all centered around people having guns in front of their face instead of at some position where they can assess what's going on i mean it's almost a universal commonality with them um you know you see somebody that's that's got that quarter to three-tenths of a second window to bring a gun up from a low ready and make an assessment before they shoot. I I think that's where you reduce the mistake of fact shoots. Um, 
And I don't know that the optic provides that big of a, of, it almost makes it sound like, well, there's a TV screen on top of your gun and you can see everything beyond it. And it's like, no, not really. Um, so what I liked about it was staying threat focused. Like Eric made the, the comment, Hey, you should be able to, as you're assessing through the glass, if you are shooting something or someone, you should be able to pick up more information as you're in that assessment process and elimination process that I think maybe irons have a handicap there because the gun's going to be more in your line of vision. Right. So I, and I, and I think it'll, if people are trained properly with it, it'll get them out of the gas faster than to continue to launch ammo into the public. So I will, hopefully I will agree. I will agree that they will probably lead to. I would hopefully agree that they would lead to hopefully better use of force decisions, but I don't necessarily agree with the fact that where the focus is, is going to change that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't think you should be staring at somebody through yeah. your optic, right? right. Like that's just right. uh, now person's got you know gun or knife something and i i'll harken back in my archives uh i had the uh three prong front front post on a guy's center high center chest for about three and a half hours where we were negotiating with him over a gun to his head and everybody goes well he just had a gun to his head i'm like yeah he can turn that on to you me or anybody else in a you know a quarter of a second uh so in that it's like Am I justified to shoot him? Almost like, you know, you're four and a half pounds of pressure away from, from that decision. And, and we, it was also a proximity thing, right? Like there were so many people in close and I was the only one that could get a shot that didn't have a rule four violation with it. And now we have a negotiator that's kind of in an area that's like, I, I don't, I can't even take a shot if this guy presented me a lethal threat. Um, and those of you that have eliminated rollover prone out of your rifle programs, I sat with my head on the concrete for about an hour and a half, rolled up under a car. Um, but that context, I go, okay, I can, and I would have loved to have had an optic. I just didn't have that at that particular time. Uh, but I think if I would have had an optic, I wouldn't have had to maybe sit there and stare at dude through iron sights and trying to shift focus back and forth the whole time while keeping the gun in view in the periphery. So, um, but I mean, that was, we were right on the verge of lethal force the whole time. Um, couple of, there was two times I actually deactivated the safety on my gun and watched other cops plug their ears and duck. I'm like, and oddly enough to round out that whole deal, which yeah, it had the, the rule two and rule four thing were a big part of that. Um, I was strictly adherent to rule three, like keep your finger off. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it, it worked out, but about 10 years later, I ran into that guy and he had like completely turned his life around. And uh, he oddly enough made the statement, you know, 
I would have thought about testing all those guys that just had pistols. But for some reason, when I saw the rifle, I didn't want any part of it. That made no sense to me, but to him, it rationalized it. But, but having been in that, I was like, I don't know that an optic other than the fact I probably could have taken in a little more information out there. I don't know that it would have paid any real dividends there uh, because we were already past the rule two exception. Right. So anyway, moving on, I, I want to go back to the, having the, the rifle thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my former sheriff used to pound into me. I don't want you to teach them what they can't do. I want you to teach them what they can do. Right. We're not here to teach deputy survival. We're here to teach deputy victory. And, you know, my first law enforcement agency, we had the policy that you weren't allowed to deploy a long gun unless you were able to articulate why you were outgunned with your handgun. Uh, I kind of have the view that if I can justify drawing a pistol from my holster, I can justify having a slung long gun, you know, across my chest with my hands on it. Mm -hmm. And so when I, you know, policy I learned makes much more sense when you're the one that writes it. And, you know, so when I wrote, I used the force policies and stuff I, I had in there that if, if you can justify having a drawn pistol, you have the justification to have a long gun. And right. so I didn't have, we had people that would clear alarm calls and stuff with a slung rifle. And I think there are instances in which, going back to what you said, that guy and I would have tried cops with pistols, but he wasn't going to try the losing battle against the guy with the long gun. And I, I can't point to any instance where I said that guy didn't try us because of that. But I think we've had some of those where they saw a deputy step out of the car with a rifle that looked like they were prepared to take action. They're like, I am not going to press this fight. And I know there's some in the public that will say, oh, it's militaristic and it's all this kind of stuff. But if it leads to not using force, yeah, appropriate force soon enough equals less force later. Right. You know, yeah. if you got to put your hands on somebody and the helm dog just decided to make a, a surgeon into the, <laughs> to the, just off screen into the, the podcast. You know, enough force or appropriate force soon enough equals less force later. If you have to put your hands on someone and you win the fight at the outset, we don't end up in the felony two-step out in the traffic with guns blazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think a lot of agencies, uh, they say de-escalation, but they don't understand it. And they train, they train one way, they discipline another way. Um, and I, and I've seen that countless times, uh, you know, it's going on at my former agency. It's you, you train them to do one thing and you discipline them to do another and you get a big poopy diaper out of that. But, uh, the gun, the gun thing I've seen multiple times, especially in the era before we had ARs, uh, I carried an 870 and a Benelli super 90. That's a whole nother story. We couldn't, we couldn't carry rifles. So I was like, well, I can own you at about 150 yards with a super 90 and slugs. So let's, uh, you know, and anyway, but the, the 870 always kept it with triple lot. Well, the helm may be off screen, but she is making her presence known. Oh, I can't hear it. So 
Uh, she just saw a squirrel in the backyard and oh, went absolutely nuts. Okay. Well, you, you got I guess some the thing we did with the mic before we started kept it from getting over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, about the eight seventies, man. I have seen yeah. some dudes go like marionette, like yeah. arms up, like a marionette. I've seen people that weren't directly involved in an incident mm-hmm. go hands straight up in the air and dead, like frozen, uh, just from something about wood and steel and the sound it makes. Now I know that's not a reliable, um, it's an outlier. It's not something that we go, Oh, when I racked a shotgun, if they don't comply, it's not that, but I have seen it have some psychological effect on people. Um, so much so that, uh, couple of armed robbers one night my partner's giving them commands and one of them starts getting froggy in the 870 rack he didn't realize i was coming up on the passenger side and all of a sudden the whole situation went from you know why are you harassing us to okay officer would you like me to use my right hand or my left hand to undo my seatbelt? And, and i mean it was a dramatic shift um i actually recorded that guy later in the back seat of my car talking to his arm robber buddy mm-hmm. and he said i would have run if that guy didn't have the he called it the pig or the gauge or the something yeah. um and that was a that was a dicey moment guy had a 1911 in the floorboard and uh but i didn't have a red dot and i was had an sl20 it's amazing i survived did we ever do anything before optics and weapon mounted lights I don't know how we did, honestly. No. <laughs> yeah. Because I, the internet says it's not possible. Oh man, I I still it was it was so commonplace back then, you didn't think about it. You just worked around it. Um weapon mounted lights, I was an early adopter of the weapon mounted light and I didn't see a whole lot of use for it after a year or two. I kept one on my gun because the only holsters that were pushed out in mass that were that had good retention systems and all that or modern retention they all required a gun light i was like well all right um but i never felt like outgunned or anything without a gun light i mean i could shoot with a sl20 in a harry's position or or you know one-handed and i shot one of those double action single action guns you can't shoot one-handed uh, I don't remember if you've seen it or not, but my, my two, two, six had like 13, 14 pound double action. Never, I'd have never had an issue with it, but. I have not seen your two, two, six, but I carried a Smith 406 for seven years. I'm familiar. Yeah. I, I mean, in my thoughts on it were, if I have to deploy this, it is going to be very obvious that the first shot was deliberate, mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> maybe that's a self-inflicted punishment, but, but no, I mean, there was no, you're going to accidentally break through that double action. You're going to have to think about it. I could understand a startle response or something. Somebody could probably crush through it, but it was heavy, still heavy to this day. So. If we if we want to reduce mistake effect shootings, then well, let's go to long 
double action triggers. Long double action? Yeah. Like long trigger pulls that are double action. If we want to reduce mistake effect shootings, I think that would do more for it than what having an optic versus iron. Yeah, installing something that's a little more deliberate, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the downside is most of the people that remember how to train with those are are gone, or they're yeah. they're not doing that anymore. Um, and I, I've never had a issue. The only gun I've ever had an issue with service gun was the the G twenty two Gen three with a light and a 180 grain bullet. It was just chokematic, man. Um, but as far as service guns right now, I mean, to me, they're kind of all equal. I mean, none of them, you, you get preferences, right? But, uh, and then the gun, the gun light thing, you know, I, I had to keep one for a while. So I'm, I've got a picture of me in Tom's class out in North Carolina and I've got a TLR seven a, which is like the crappiest little gun light, whatever. But I had to have a gun light to, to get the retention holster I wanted. So that was like the combo that I could get. Um, people were like, well, you said you hate gun lights and you're, you are with the gun light. No, I'm just I don't prefer them, but I can't get a good holster without one. So, well, to check D all of the above, uh, when I first set up my first, pistol with an optic on it uh, mm -hmm. the only duty holster that i could get like get my hands on immediately was one of the Sephora lens 7ts series mm -hmm. holsters and it was it required a weapon mounted light and so all right uh, that's what i had and later i found another option and that holster went by the way so just kind of went into the box of holsters well, the week before Eric's class, I managed to get a pistol that was directly milled for an acro. I'd had an acro sitting around for six months waiting for a pistol. So I put it on that pistol and the only holster that I have that will duty holster retention that will accommodate the optic is lo and behold that 7TS. And Safari Land makes optional hoods that you can uh, that you can put on them and um you know, to accommodate the acros. So I put one of those on the 7TS, uh, go to the class, and I noticed that my optic keeps being dimmer when I would draw it versus what it was when I put it back in the holster. And I thought something might be going wrong with the optic. Well, this happened to be standing next to industry luminary Wayne Dobbs, who also worked for Aimpoint. I said, hey, Wayne, something's going on with my optic. He goes, yeah, what? And I said, when I draw it out, it's dimmer than it was when I put it back in the holster. So we swapped the guns because he was shooting the same gun I was. Mm -hmm. So we swapped for a couple of iterations. And what we figured out was something in the holster was coming into contact with the controls on the optic. Yep. And if I drug the pistols just a certain way coming out of the holster, it would press the minus button on the optic and would cause the reticle to dim. But it just means you don't have enough training with your draw. No, <laughs> I'm just, that is, that is the other thing. I'm, this yeah. is me on a soapbox. That's one of the things that drives me nuts about some of the optics community. It's like, if you find a short, a weak link in it, it's mm -hmm. not a weak link with the optic. It's your training. 
I'm like, come on, guys. Like, if bullets flew out of the gun and, sh- and sailed 90 degrees to the left, you would probably say, oh, that's problematic, right? Like, maybe we should look at addressing this. Not, well, you know, if you would turn half right before oh. you shot, this wouldn't be an issue if you were trained. That's a gross over-exaggeration, but... Um, but, but I had, I had two or three things come to light with, with an optic that I find is very popular amongst a lot of, um, a lot of the, the red dot crowd. And I was, I finally just stopped shooting the gun that everybody says doesn't work with the optic that everybody loves because the gun was running fine and the optic crapped the bed right there. (laughs) What is this? So I grabbed uh, staccato with an acro and finished up for about 30 minutes. But Well, I will say that the issue with the optic dimming, that was a holster issue. That was mm-hmm. not an optic issue. But this is a very common duty holster that's out there. And this is something that people need to be aware of, that when you're running the holster now, you, you just haven't done enough work. Well, most of my questions about the optics come from actually going out during the work. Right with the optics, and uh, yeah, I figured this out because I was on a range during work. So the next day, I just switched to a Safarwin GLS holster, mm-hmm. and I didn't have that problem. Right. All right. Um, so that is a holster problem. And, th- and then when I got back home, I ordered two new duty holsters. And hopefully I will not have that same problem with those two duty holsters. But this was that was the only whole duty holster I had that would accept the pistol and the acro combination. Um well, if it's uh, it was my 6354 DO, which accepts other optics, would not accept the acro without modification. I just didn't want to take a drum to my duty holster. Mm-hmm. What well, you had a parallax issue or something with oh, the 509T? Yeah. 509T. And I didn't notice it day one. I'm not saying it wasn't there. Uh, but day one, all of my groups went where the dot was pointed. And about the end of the day, I started noticing that B8s looked like kind of like footballs. And I was like, man, it's hot out here, but I don't think it's like glass melting hot. I mean, I think we would have all sustained serious injury uh, if it would have been you know, that, that degree of hot, but, and then I started noticing that it has a coating that has a hue of like a bluish hue. Don't know anything about it. Um, I'm not, I'm not a tech guy with, with optics. I mean, I am to some degree, but not, not to that degree. Um, and our industry luminary grabbed it and he goes, dude, what happened? Cause he had shot the gun that morning or the day before, uh, we did Hilton yams an abbreviated extractor test on uh, the Springfield prodigy. And I filmed him doing it to watch where the brass was coming out. Cause he's lefty, right? I can actually see. That. So, uh, and he looks at the glass and he's like, ah, it's not terrible, but man, it's uh, right around the edges. It's got some distortion. And by the end of the class, that distortion had moved all the way through the center of the glass uh, to the point where at five yards, I was three and four inches off. And, and not in a consistent like low left or high right. I mean, it it was just moving like a laser pointer. And it wasn't 
uh, it wasn't the dot, it was the glass, right? Like, so, uh, and it really came to light at 25 yards. I laid prone 25, 30 yards and shot a group. And I had an eight inch vertical string that they were stacked, almost aligned with each other. And I'm like that, that ain't vertical me. Or horizontal. Yeah. Horizontal. I'm sorry. It's horizontal. I mean, like you could have drawn like a, almost a straight line across the target. And Hanny goes, man, dude, are you feeling tired? And I'm like, no, that wasn't me. That was either ammo or, or I've got an, a, another problem. And sure enough, after that iteration, the glass looked as like it does now. And I took some pictures of it. It was horrible after that. I was like, yeah, we're going to retire this gun. And, uh, so, but I, I submitted a warranty claim with Holosun and I guess they're going to replace it or yeah. something to that effect. So, uh, and then it'll be for sale to whoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I guess too is, man, the, this stuff is all selling so fast that the companies are just cranking it out right and left. And I think everybody's quality control is suffering. Yeah, and, you know, we've never seen that with major gun companies in ammo before, right? Like, huh. during an ammo crisis, you don't get pallets of ammo with primers loaded upside down. So, I don't think yeah. any... I don't think any wing of the gun industry is immune from that when things start selling fast. Um, thus far, and this is not just because of Wayne, but I mean about everything, I have seen that, you know, Aimpoint has its shortcomings. They do. They have, they have, some of them have issues. But they seem to have less issues less frequently than all of the others, you know, and there's a couple of optics companies out there. I was surprised weren't in that class um, that they didn't have really have a showing. Uh, so it seems that maybe Holosun has taken over a lot of their market, um, but they have their quirks. I mean, we all talked about, and I'll throw Eric a, a good shout out here is he didn't, he wasn't teaching you to run a dot. He was teaching you to teach how to run a dot. So he already expected yeah. you had some background and some knowledge with it. Mm -hmm. um, and almost all of us had seen various failures that somebody else hadn't. And that all came out in the class. That was, this is one of my favorite parts of the lecture was like, you know, Hey, I'm hearing great things about this. Oh, well, I've broken four, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, well, how did they break? They broke like this. Um, yeah. That was a refreshing part or a, a, a really refreshing thing to be in a class that had that much student interaction about the subject, so. Well, uh, one thing I think we should point out with, with optics is I think they do allow for a greater level of proficiency or, pr or precision, I guess a bit mm -hmm. better precision. Uh, and people are actually shooting with the optics to a point that they can actually verify a zero and none of these people ever did that with their own parts. Yeah. yeah either be it because the shooting a 140 wide front sight on a traditional duty gun, you know, a lot of, you know, 
private sector, you might see 125 front sights or 115 if people are shooting, shooting matches and such. But a 140 wide front sight covers five inches of target at 25 yards. A 3.25 MOA front sight covers 0.8 something inches at 25 yards. There's just a greater level of precision there because you've only got a very portion, small portion of the target covered. Whereas, you know, that 140 wide front sight is covering almost the full black bull of a B8 yeah. at 25. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of shooters just don't have the skill to shoot that to a zeroable group. Um, but you also have to take into account that if you zero your pistol with your zero your optic in 40 degree weather and the ammo has been in the back of your trunk overnight, etc. When you go out and shoot in 96 degree weather and the ammo has been in the back of your trunk overnight, there's going to be a minor zero shift. There just is. Uh, it was there too with your arm sights. You just didn't notice it. Right. Uh, but when you go out under similar conditions and all of a sudden there's a four inch zero shift with your optic, that's not changes in the environmental conditions. That's something's gone wrong with the optic. Uh, I have Trigicon products on three pistols or four. Um, I have had minor, what I consider environmental-based optic shifts with all but one of them. And with the other one, I've had a major mechanical mm -hmm. zero shift with the optic. And to the point that I would have been missing shots at seven yards. That's an issue. Yeah, I would say that's probably an issue. Yeah. But the um, bigger issue is, do you have enough training at this point to really identify that? The, no, I'm kidding. I just can't. I Man, I can't resist any opportunity to just uh, needle that one a little further because it's just a funny uh, inside baseball, I guess. Yeah, that and the, you know, the so-called thing that I hate optics. Well, for someone who hates optics, I've spent an inordinate amount of resources, time, effort, money, ammo, et cetera to study this whole thing because it ain't going away no it's um, not it's not um i'm up to three or four just instructor courses much not none nonetheless all the the practitioner level stuff i've done with it uh the trigicon optic was is an armor that shifted where i was doing a demo for a student and i missed a shot like a whole group missed a headshot on a drill at seven yards, like I was firing a group of three. And I'll cut through with the drill, like, Ooh, boy, that looked ugly. I guess I just flubbed that one. Let me do that again and do it right this time. And the group was again off. And I said, Pardon me for a second. Let's pause this. And I went and put up a zero target and shot it. And it was way off. Okay, that's the optic. That's not me. I put it down, picked up another pistol the drill that all the shots really supposed to go right that is a problem with the optic now i will grant some of that was probably not that much of a shield that was a mechanical problem yeah i would i would like to see manufacturers uh build a gun around an optic 
mm-hmm. instead of building plates and crap like yeah. that around the gun. And I always thought it would be really fascinating uh, with a Beretta 92. If you could find a way to put like a low mount dot mounted directly to the barrel, just hear me out. The barrel doesn't move. It just moves back and forth. So the slide moves around it. And I was like, Ooh, Uh that'd be cool. And to have the optic midway into the gun, which if you go back and look at open shooters back in USPSA for decades, their optic sets about over the ejection port, right? Not behind it. And I don't, I don't really understand why other than, uh, maybe they can get the optic lower there or for some reason it balances out the gun a little better. Um, I shot one of the Laugo aliens. You seen those they're funky looking pistol that comes out. I think the Czech Republic, uh, not a whole lot of them. They're extremely expensive. Um, I shot one of those that had an optic that didn't move. Uh, it's mounted in kind of like a Smith and Wesson 41 or something where it's mounted on top of a, uh, a non reciprocating uh, piece of mass on. And that was fan flipping tastic. I was like, Oh my gosh, instead of having innovations, of how to bolt this crap onto the gun. Why don't we get a gun and build it up around the optic? Um, you know, and for some reason, most of our duty pistols are John Browning tilting barrel designs and optics work really good on fixed barrel gas guns and, uh, like recoil operated, like Berettas and stuff like that. They work really good on those setups, but that's like the least common duty setups that we have. Right. So yeah, I'm interested I to think, see what the industry does. You know, I think eventually we'll see either a manufacturer come out with an optic that is integrated into the slide or we'll see something uh, like the Ruger Mark II, in which the the frame doesn't move, but the bolt moves back and forth within yeah. the frame. Something like that, nine millimeter with an optic mounted through the top of it, that the optic does not reciprocate because the bolt's moving back and forth within yeah. within the 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 frame of the the firearm. That's, One of those two things is going to have to happen to make this foolproof. Yeah, and that's that's the way the Laugo Alien pistol was. Um, and I was like, man, and, and it had a, such a, like the chamber and the bore is right in line with like the base of your thumb knuckle. So instead of having the bore up here above your, really above your hand, it's driving the gun straight back into your hand. So it's snappy, uh, but you had very little muzzle rise. Uh, it reminded me a lot of shooting a comped pistol, but without a comp, just by the way that the gun ran um and i I don't own one i had a a friend that owned one and then he had a mount built for an acro and i was like wow this i mean it was like the days of shooting a 38 super race gun with like a 16 port comp and an aim point you know on top of it where the gun just didn't move uh and and you'd see little wiggles in the dot and you're going wow Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I've heard rumor there's, there's behind the scenes stuff with integrated optics going on, but, uh, 
But the bigger problem after you get that is the holster situation. Yep. You know, then the industry's got to respond with holsters. And it's amazing how many of these, these companies all hold each other hostage. You know what I mean? Oh, well, you're going to do that. And it's going to do this to this gun. Well, we're not building the holster for it. Or, hey, we're, we're only building holsters for these optics. You know, things like that. And, and the private sector responds to that stuff really quickly. Um, I kind of laugh, like Tony Mayer from JM. I swear he's got like a line to somebody because, you know, a new gun with a new optic will come out and he's like, coming uh, this week, here they are. <laughs> you can jump online and buy it like two days later. Uh, it, it's almost funny. I'm like, how did, oh, he knew. You know, that's, that's one of the things about duty guns is that Safari Land does not make a holster for the duty gun and or the particular setup that you want for it. It ain't happening. No. Um, and it's not a knock against them. I mean, I understand. Uh, like, their their tooling and machinery is it is an intensive process to set up. Um, I want to say there was some there was some gun our pistol team was shooting years ago and we wanted a particular safari land holster made for that. And we, and their reps are real nice. And we said, Hey, what would it take to get this made this way? And they go 800 unit order. I'm like, well, there's like eight of us. They're like, yeah, have everybody have everybody bring a hundred buddies and we'll, we'll make whatever you want. And I went, wow. You know, um, so, I mean, and that was 15 years ago. So there's no telling now, like, I don't know what the, the scoop is, but. Safari land has deemed in this infinite wisdom that optic also means weapon mounted light. Mm -hmm. And so every duty holster they make for an optic pistol for a pistol with an optic is also for a pistol with a weapon mounted light, which at all. Okay. We, we can argue that. But the problem is, is they don't make those weapon-mounted light holsters compatible with a pressure switch. And the other problem is that there is a gap big enough on all of their weapon-mounted light holsters that you can get your finger into the trigger. And when I mentioned that in class, there was a law enforcement agency head in Texas in the class whose eyes got really big around. He says, I did that accidentally holstering earlier today and I didn't know what had happened and how my finger got in there. I'm like, yep. And we looked around, we looked at his holster, and sure enough, there's a big enough gap because they have to make the the for lack of a better word, bell of the mm -hmm. holster big enough for the for the light to get around. Well it's hard to make that constricted around the pistol enough that you can't get that gap in there. And so if your agency's looking at it, Okay, that means you got to have a pistol, you got to have an optic, you got to have a weapon mounted light. And if Safari Land doesn't deem that they can make enough holsters or sell enough holsters in that configuration, it's not happening. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and we and we've seen examples of that, man. It's over and over yeah. and over. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons I say, man, uh, the number one law enforcement. It's like if you're an agency. You're an officer at an agency that has the has some influence there. Uh, the G45 is the number one number one law enforcement gun now. 
It is the G17 of yesteryear, right? Um, and there's all these direct mount configurations coming for them, agency purchase only. And I go, if you stick to a Glock, there's about 99% chance that the holster combination you want is either available or going to become available. So it's something to think it's food for thought, you know? Yeah. And that's one of the things that the decent normal human being concealed carrier doesn't have to worry about because somebody mm-hmm. bending codex uh, can make it work. And you're hiding the holsters not out there for the whole world to see. Um, now, there is another player in the game, US Duty Gear. Uh, I have two of their holsters on order for, for different Glock configuration just to test them out and see. But, uh, you know, I love my CZ P10C. Mm hmm. But it's never going to be a legit player in the in the law enforcement market, just because the support gear's not there. Yeah, and I don't have a like, I don't have a hatred for CZ at all. You know, I mean, we mm-hmm. I joke chipped on you about you know hipster gun or whatever, uh, but those uh, the striker fired CZs, I like, I have no no issue with them. I think they're a solid setup. Um, there's a couple other companies out there that, that are like that. I'm like, unfortunately, unless Detroit PD or somebody adopts them, it's going to be a really big stretch to to try to get the, you know, the the holster gear you want or the support gear you want. So, I mean, I've seen countless examples of that over the years too. I mean. Going back to Eric's class for a second, mm-hmm. there was one thing that he really pushed, and that was uh, the use of ready positions. With ready being defined as the weapon is not pointed at the person. No, no part of the muzzle is covering uh, the, tar- the target, which would represent a person. I see a decidedly lack of that in optics classes. It's all presentation from the holster and then when you tell the student you know i think you had an experience with this at a class recently you had them shoot from the ready and like i said looked at you said i've never done this with an optic from the ready yeah there were like five of them and it was at TACCON. yeah um and all of them were dialed in shooters um all five of them were i was like man these dudes are squared away uh their gear was squared away their you know, they weren't wearing like cool guy, tough guy clothes or any of that. These dudes were just squared away gun handling shooters. All of them were like, yeah, I've never done that. I've never even practiced that way before. I'm like, well, how long you been running an optic? Five years. I'm like, oh, whoa, really? Yeah. And, and I've been to like, you know, all these classes, optic specific, non-optic specific, yeah, I, I I didn't shoot from that position ever. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, well, now you have. Okay, cool. Um, and then the other one was uh, running muzzle high, which Dallas Pistol Club you can't do that. It's a you know it's a safety thing. A, uh, but I appreciate that too because it forces you to be uncomfortable with things you get. You know, I love bringing the gun up high and rocking the gun over and punching it mm-hmm. out to the target. That's just 
especially from the holster, everything just that's your it's like that's your your hatchet swing or something, you know, golf swing, whatever. Uh, but when you can't do that or you have to alter that in some way, yeah. uh, I really appreciate it forces you out of your comfort zone. It absolutely makes you have to not play by your rules, which, which I like. So. Yeah. Uh, we shot from non-traditional positions in this class. We shot at distance and you made a statement in your review that, uh, may not be well received by some who read it and that you know there was not oh a chasing of belt standards yeah i, I threw and, everybody in there everybody yeah. i said it, there it, was no he didn't go after any one instructor he no. went after everybody you know if you're going to be a bear be a grizzly uh but i said you know there was no hats no pins no coins no this that or the other no pokemon bs and that's a caleb Giddingsism that he and I talk about neither one of us are opposed or against that. I was just noting in the, in the course review that none of those things were present, like none of it. And then I think he gave away a hat. So, I mean, there was, but it's in my was, truck. Yes. Yes. That's, that's right. It was, uh, but there was no, okay. On this date at this time, you know, high noon, we're going to, we're going to test for, I don't know, some trinket. Right. And I have no issue with that at all. Like if that is your jam and I know people that do it, I know people that go, you know, that, that this is not a, uh, knock at Ernest Langdon. I mean, he's a friend of mine. I know people that have gone to his class four times just to try to earn a fast coin. Awesome. I mean, if that's what keeps somebody engaged and keeps them chasing whatever, good on you. It, and Caleb Giddings makes the statement. It's like Pokemon, man. You got to catch all the range Pokemon. You got to get the, mm -hmm. you know, the black belt patch and the, this and the, that, and the, you know, the sharks with laser beams or whatever. Um, and that is fine. And if that keeps you training and engaged and wanting to do better and, and I, awesome. I was just saying that it was, that was omitted from the class. There was none of it in there. It was just a, like a train, the trainer class. Uh, but man, some people got their feathers ruffled over that. And I'm like, guys, I don't hate orphans. I don't hate puppies. Um, uh, I don't hate dots. I don't even hate weapon mounted lights. Or, it, it, it's like, I'm not saying those things are bad. We just didn't have any of those. <laughs> and, and I, I don't know, I, you know, I've, I've tried to read that three or four times back to myself and I'm like, I could see how, if you were looking at that in the negative, mm -hmm. Oh, he's saying that's bad. No, all I said is it just wasn't there. And I can read it to myself and I realized, yeah, we didn't do any of that stuff. Um, uh, and then I did throw the profane BS in there and I did that on purpose because I wasn't saying doing those things are BS. It just, we didn't do any of that. Um, and I wasn't trying to make that seem negative, but I knew just by having that little profane statement in there, 
some people would not, they would forget to check their ego as they were reading that. And that came out a bunch too. And, and I had some people message me offline about it. And they're like, Hey, what was that about? And I'm like, Oh, we just didn't do any of that. And they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying any of that's bad or negative or, Oh, that's what I thought you meant. It's exactly what I meant. Like, Hey, there was no ice cream in Eric Gellhouse's class. That was the, like, that's the equivalent statement there. You know what? We didn't drink soda pop on the line. Wasn't there. Doesn't mean I don't like it. <laughs> there was no babes chicken delivered on the line. Not one time. See, now if I had read that there was no ice cream or no babes chicken, then I would not have been encouraged to come to the class. Although yeah, this, I did get ice cream and babe chicken, but not during class. Right. Well, I got a babe chicken fried steak, not babe chicken. Yeah, I, I got. Uh, I don't even remember what I had. I think it was a chicken fried steak because it. I yeah. I pretty well murdered it. Um, but this is the only class review I've ever done, or class kind of A R overview, yeah. whatever you want to call it, where I've actually included the cuisine as part of the uh, part of the class AAR, I guess you could say. And it was just, hey, man, we did this. We did this. We, we didn't have any contests there. Well, we had one, and we didn't even know it was a contest. That was, yeah, we did not know until after. It was like, oh, by the way, here's the, the, the what? Yeah. Uh, and, now, and I will say, in fairness, I do give away a patch in my classes before I particular score on a particular test for the which the details are conspicuously scant. Uh awesome because I don't want people gaming and practicing and coming to the class to try to I'm coming to burn down this this particular test to get a patch because quite usually you don't even know the details of the scoring until after it's over with. Uh, bulky and I yeah. he has the the bad Santa patch. Yeah. When we go teach together, somebody's getting a bad Santa patch. And it might be for the most improved shooter, you know, somebody that, that came in struggling and then is just chewing the X-ring. It might be somebody that makes some uh, really good decision. Ooh, I shouldn't shoot that. Okay, you're catching, like, it, but, like, we give a patch away. And <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a problem with it. I... I don't know. Maybe I need to check my tone sometimes or have my girlfriend proofread it. But even she was like, I, you weren't really talking bad about it. You just said that that wasn't there. Oh, uh, well. And I have to work this in. I do have two of England combative states balding belt buckles and her only has one. Oh, John, you, you might want to step the ball game up there. I mean, I don't know that Dave's going to be doing too many classes, John. You might want to go enroll in, I don't know, all of them. See, you know, better odds the more you do, right? The more, more money you put on the table. No. Yeah. And, and there is a marketing, you know, from the instructor side of the, the, the equation, there is a marketing standpoint for that. Yeah. Because if, if people are coming to your class to chase it because they place value, on i have this belt buckler i have this patch or this lapel pin or whatever um okay i get that 
And, you know, what you, you were saying was, okay, there was none of that. This was all about leaving the class, being better prepared to teach these the skill. Um, I'll say this is one thing that I admired about Eric, like when he demonstrated uh, one hand only shooting techniques, he did every conceivable technique for one hand only shooting techniques. And I couldn't tell which was his preferred one and which one wasn't by the results on the target. Right. There, I, I've known Eric for years. Mm-hmm. We've never shot next to each other. And I was like, Oh man, Papa Bear can shoot, dude. <laughs> like that guy's dialed in, man. Uh, I kept looking at his target, and going, "Oh, oh yeah, that's gonna be hard to keep up with, right there." Um. So yeah, and and I also I, I liked the way he broke the class down and like all every conceivable idea of how you were shooting. You and your partner go back there, and you're coaching them through it. Now, mm-hmm. granted, there's not a lot of coaching because most of us there, but you know, like Haggard and I are standing down there on the line. We've shot together off and on several times. And mm-hmm. so I know what his presentation looks like. He knows what my, like what my grip on a gun looks like. So we're looking at each other. Okay. Now we have this dot apparatus. How is it altering what we're doing? And we're having that discussion between each relay like oh hey man i noticed you do this with your your shoulders or whatever or you you know you squat your head or this i mean there's a little minutia uh-huh. that we were picking up and then we had enough conversational time back there to go why are we doing that because we're going to see students doing that so not just you did that don't do that it was why did we why did we react that way? Or why did our body move that way? What were we crutching or is it bad? Is it good? Is it something we can integrate? I've never been to an instructor school like that, that you had that built in and it wasn't even BS time. It was just coaching time. Um, and man, it, like Haggard and I both had some just big discoveries there with technique. Um, where he was like, Ooh, wow, that really, and it would be something Eric explained and we mm-hmm. would try it in different formats. Um, yeah, there was several times and same thing with Chris France and I, uh, he, we had a, a couple of big epiphanies there. Um, and then I got partnered with my, my brother Hanny for a while. Um, uh, so that was that was interesting to see because he's actually taught red dot usage and implementation for years and he he and I were having different conversations than Chuck and I were that Chris and I were is a awesome awesome environment yeah because we would shoot a particular technique or techniques for doing a certain range problem and I want to be over here and call back over. Okay, Brian, what did you see with your student this time? And they'd be like, yeah. Okay, Chuck, how would you teach this based on what you saw? And so there was lots of that kind of information being exchanged versus, aren't you done what I've told you? Now let's go do the next thing I'm telling you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, constant back and forth. And I even watched Eric break his notebook out a couple of times when people would say, you know, I've experienced this before and this is how I changed or altered it. And I, you know, he'd kind of get the, write it down. Okay. Moving on. I'm like, Oh man, he's thieving from all of us. Great. <laughs> no, uh, but, and there were several things like in his presentation, um, there were several things that came out during his presentation and, and a couple other times on the range that he and I have nerded out for hours on the phone over. Hey, hey, have you seen this? Where did this come from? Where do you see it? How did it get here? Um, I mean, Eric and I talk every other week or so, sometimes once a month, and it's usually, hey, what do you know about this? Why does this happen? Uh, and it could be guns, it could be gear, uh, but several conversations that we've had, um, like I could see some of the contents of that. And I'm not saying I'm the only one that had that conversation with him, but it was not unfamiliar because we would turbo nerd over this. this. Um, and the, the one example I really remember is, you remember the cheat the elbows from the low ready? Mm-hmm. I, I discovered that on my own, um, just playing around with ready positions. And I called Eric and said, is this, tell me how you teach somebody that's having trouble finding the dot from a low ready. He goes, Oh, I teach them to cheat their elbows in a little bit. And I went, okay, so I'm not the only one that, and, and I said, Oh, okay. Well, cause I'm seeing this deal where dudes are like basketball hooping and leaning back. And he goes, yeah, where'd that come from? Have you thought about that? And then, off down the rabbit hole. And, and that's one of the great things about being in uh, the range master community of instructors. You've got some really great turbo nerd propeller headed trainer dudes that have a ton of knowledge and experience that you have access to, you know, it's been a great, yeah. great, great thing. One of the thing I want to give Eric praise for and the way he handled this class is there were numerous strong personalities in the class that could have easily tried to turn it into their class instead of Eric. And he did an excellent job of managing that and hitting off some of those things. And uh, I put that in my written review, but I'm going to throw that in here as well. Yeah. Uh, I thought he did a masterful job at that. Yeah, I mean, you you had some some type A gunslingers in there, um, and a lot of high level instructor people there. Um, and I this is I don't know how to say this without it, it's not a slight to Eric or anything, but the format that he laid it out in, it made sense, the progression of things. But I think any given block in there, there was somebody in that class that was experienced enough that probably could have taught or taught something about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but Eric turned it into a sharing of knowledge. Like it, it was, it was almost like a round table discussion of shooters with a pressure test live fire. 
Hey, this is what, you know, and, and it was almost like he was just steering the conversation amongst students, which I thought was really cool. I've never seen an instructor do that and or not successfully anyway. Um, and then he would, he would put the icing on it after every block though. I mean, it was, uh, there was a point to everything, but sometimes how we got there was, Hey Lee, uh, on your holster, like, what are you seeing with that? How can we correct that? And it would be Lee talking for what, four or five minutes about, Hey, this is the setup. This is how I get And what you, what you start realizing is, okay, Lee's holding court over here and Eric's over there taking notes about it. But that dude's the, you know what I mean? I, I thought that was so cool to be able to, you know, Hey Wayne, how does Aimpoint teach this? Well, you know, we look at it from this perspective or this, and, and Eric's over there with his notebook, making notes for the TACCON chess club or whatever. And, um, so that was a unique, that was unique experience, but I don't think it would have worked if you didn't have the caliber of people that were in that course. I would agree with that. And I think that's one reason why he's going to keep the standard of admission where it's at. Um, you know, cause there was no having to fix anybody's shooting along the way. And we'll, we'll go back to the whole range Pokemon thing there for a second. <laughs> You know, so many times it becomes to we've got to teach to this standard and make sure everybody passes this test for their instructor thing. Whereas that time was spent on working on teaching various various topics. But the you know, I, I took a uh, optic instructor course from one of the manufacturers here recently, and the first day and a half was great information except for one thing I vehemently disagree with. But my actual skills as a shooter crossed a bridge in that class with using the optic. Yeah, I walked away after that first day and a half thinking, okay, now I'm to a point where this is what I need to be doing. But the last half of the second day was about nothing other than shooting the test standards and practicing the test standards. And then going back and shooting them again for score to see who got the batch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, I'm proud of my patch because I was one of the six of the however many that got one. But would that other half a day have been better spent on more? How would you teach this? Or each one of you has to stand up here and do a five-minute block on something you learned in this class. Yeah. It's an instructor class, not a, yeah. Yeah. And not a win this patch class. And that was uh, the way Eric did that class. Think about the class intros the first night. That took mm -hmm. almost an hour. And we only had what 12 people. So you figure almost every single person doing their introduction, Eric was peeling questions out of them 
and history and his and s- stuff. I'm going, I've never been in a class where I've said more than, hi, my name's Brian. You know, I've been an LE instructor cop. Thanks. Be over here. Let's, yeah. let's, you know, what's your experience with them? When was the first time you shot one? What was, what, what model was it? And then you could just see turret propellers just spinning oh, like, Oh wow. We get to actually talk about this. Um, and I really, I, I liked that engagement, uh, because there were, there were all manner of people, uh, Chuck Haggard going back, I think the furthest, but, but we had like the entire archives of red dot history right there. Like, you know, everybody could have written a little chapter on it. I mean, that was really cool. Um, and I've seen a lot of instructor schools that are just shoot a standard and okay, you pass the standard. Now you can go teach. Uh, the first LE instructor school I went to was that way. Like, okay, got to shoot a 540 PPC. Got to shoot a five plate drill, five plate dozer drill in under three seconds with a pump gun. Okay. Like, Got to shoot all the state qualification courses at ninety percent. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, so that well, that part of it was. Go ahead. I do want to be fair to everyone out there. Mm-hmm. By Eric setting the admission standard where he was, everybody had pretty much already proven that they could do this. And so it wasn't like we were having to test to make sure that you have a basic level of proficiency. You have to actually even claim the title of instructor. It's right. okay, you've already done that in other other venues, other settings. Um, now we're gonna come work on this particular problem. And yeah, I do think we need to point that out yeah. as well. Yeah. And I would almost like a standard instructor school where you've got to perform standards. Okay. And you, you, you passed that maybe doesn't develop you on how to coach or how to run a line or whatever. I get it. Um, There has to be some development there. That's why they call it an instructor development, right? This was almost like a peer review uh, course. And I don't, I don't mean to sound like we're down, I'm downplaying any of Eric's information, but it was like a round table peer review. Oh, okay. Why do you do this? Why do we do that? And, and he was kind of the guiding professor of it, which, uh, so I, I would definitely say this was not like an entry level instructor development course. It was, right. uh, but I don't see a lot of courses out there like that either. You know, and I think that's where some of the greater value of it, of course, was because it was, yeah, he's the instructor, he's leading it, but it was also a collaboration event. And yeah. I think you're going to get, I think you're going to get that when you have a higher standard of admission uh, to get in there. Um, you know, because everybody's already proven it to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've told this story on the show several times. In 2020, I went to Fletzi's Farm Instructor School. I got out of the truck knowing I was going to pass the class. There was no pressure on me that I was going to pass. 
there was a young cop probably three years in from a small agent in Alabama that he was his agency's, like if he didn't pass this class, they didn't have somebody to run their calls. And you could see it on you know, all over his face on day one, the pressure. And it kept building and building and building throughout the classes. He's he's worried about, you know, is he going to pass more so than is he learning how to do what he's supposed to be learning how to do. And the way they ran that course was there were three different groups and each group was responsible for running another group through a course of fire or, or teaching a lesson plan area or et cetera. And this young man got set up with the hardest part of a lesson plan for his group. And he was struggling to the point that one of the guys in my group pointed fingers at that guy's teammates. You guys were wrong. You have set him up for this and had words with them over. This is not how you should have done this with him. Right. And you know, there was just a difference. I was able to concentrate on the material that I'm going to take away from this course and take back to my people because you know it's going to pass. I've already done it multiple times. Yeah. You, you know, what are they going to, what was I going to fail in a firearms instructor class at this point? Yeah. And, unless you blew up a gun and didn't have a spare or something to shoot the uh, test. You know, yeah. Yeah. Come back next uh, month. Yeah. And you know, there's just this, I saw it in that, that, that one optic company's classes that once they were told you're shooting this for this, you know, these standards to get this thing, the mindset of the whole class changed. Right. And that's all fine and good. I think you got to have a standard that people need to meet, but does it come chasing the standard? Is that the goal? I think, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe in a practitioner class, but not an instructor class. You've got to have standards. Right. And it's yeah. one thing for a basic initial certification compared to, you know, something like this class was. Yeah. We're learning how to do a particular thing. Yeah. And, you know, that, like I said before, it was almost like a peer class. It wasn't even yes, there was a lot of teaching material. There was a lot of, of material, uh, across the spectrum of, you know, gun toting citizen to cop to administrator. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was all points yeah. in between. Yeah. Uh, but it was a, it was a big peer class, uh, of instructor level dudes, uh, yeah. guy, guided by Eric. And I was like, and this is cool, but like you said, those standards to get at a level where you can even do something like that are, are pretty, uh, it's a high bar, I guess you could say it's a, it's a higher bar. So, um, I don't hate Pokemon. I don't hate orphans, puppies, red dots, or weapon mounted lights. How about that? But, uh, and, and Eric gave away a hat. So apparently there was mm -hmm. some of that BS in there. So, yeah. uh, but, but there again, I, I liked the intent of the class was not show up and try to chase a trinket. It was uh, show up and be 
and in, be a professional level instructor, uh, be a professional level gun handler, uh, share ideas, like develop each other as red dot instructors. So it's good stuff, man. And I think that is a key, dis key distinction there. You didn't show up to chase a particular thing. And it's fine to do that. But there's, you know, there's got to be standards. So like, Range Master's basic instructor certification standard. There mm -hmm. are shooting scores, but we have to do that to, or Tom has to do that to show that people graduating his class are meeting a national standard. Right. But the reason to go to the Range Master instructor class is not to pass the test. The reason is to get to learn how to be a firearms instructor. Right. And that's the point I think I think you were trying to make. That's the yes. point that I've taken from your review and this whole conversation is go for the learning, not for the price. Right. Uh, and there's some people that chase that, man. And that's okay. That's okay. Nobody's, you know, uh, but, but I'm a hundred percent with you there. And, and, you know, I've picked up, Along the way, in 27 years of shooting, man, I've picked up some cool stuff. I've gotten some cool coins, some cool patches, some stuff that I'm very, very proud of. Um, you know, my, my range Pokemon sitting over there with my name on it from 2007. Like, there ain't a lot of guys collecting those anymore, but I just, I'm at a point now where, like, I'm not going to go practice to take a class. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Like, I know where my skill level is. I'm not going to go practice to take a class, which is, you know, and, and maybe I shoot, oh, okay, they, they have a standard in there that, that has to be achieved. So let me go make sure that cold, I can practice. If I can pass it cold, then on after 500 rounds, I can, you know, pass it by a wide margin. So I don't, um, I don't get fascinated with that stuff anymore. And it's not an ego thing for me anymore either. Um, matter of fact, it never really was to think of it like, but I understand like some dudes, some gals, like their ego that drives them to training, uh, needs those things or wants desires to, to achieve those, those things. Man, that is awesome. Like whatever keeps you, whatever keeps your powder dry, man, like go, go out and do it. Um, when I go to, and here's something else. When I go to classes now, whether it's an instructor level class or not, I'm there looking at instructor level information. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm sure you're, you're probably wired the same way. Hey, I'm going to go take this. I don't know a pepper spray class from Chuck Haggard. I want to watch how he teaches that. Like I know what pepper spray does. I, I, I could put it on a hot dog at this point, but, um, but I want to see what he does to teach that. And I, anyway. I consider that if I leave a class with a nugget, that it was a successful class. And then the more yeah. nuggets I get, the more successful the class was. Yeah, there's, there's been a couple of times I've said, okay, my nugget is 
a thousand rounds in two days is a bad plan for Brian. Let's not do that again. Like that's, you know, or, um, pacing, uh, Alex Kogan, I'm going to throw a shout out to him. He threw like the biggest compliment to me ever that I've ever had over a total happenstance way that I ran a line at TACCON. He was like, that was the, and, and I'm not patting myself on the back. He was just like, that was the coolest thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? He's like, well, you had them line up like they were the almost the same height. So you could stand back here and look all the way down the line. And I'm like, no, nah, they were dry practicing. And I had one working the slide for the other. And I just didn't want anybody to have to get a step stool. That's the only reason that that came out. But I went, but now come to think of it, I could look down the whole line and see everything while I'm standing over on the left side with Wayne Dobbs and I'm watching the whole line. And I went, yeah, Alex, I did that on purpose. I do that every class. You know, we got a big kick out of it. But he said, after the deal, he was like, dude, I'm going to use that from now on. And I'm like, hey, I I didn't learn that. I just pulled it out. of. It was a Puma. But, uh, but that was one of those things that he's like, I would have never, like, I, I would have, the shooting part of this wasn't that difficult, but that right there was gold and i'm like oh it's yours now here take it go teach but one last thing going back to the whole standards and tests uh etc todd green made the point numerous times that you should not be out treating the fast as if it is a drill it is a test not a drill so don't go shoot the fast over and over and over again trying to get that sub five second runs everything what you do is you go practice your draw to first shots you go practice your reload you go practice your cadence so you you go practice all the individual components that the fast tests it's not the fast drill it is the fast test actually i think it's fundamental accuracy and skills test it was what fast stands for you go practice the fast no, you practice the skills that the fast test, and occasionally you shoot the fast to see where you are overall. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a forgotten point when we go to shoot for a standard. We got to shoot the skills that make up the standard. I was working with a, uh, a jailer here a couple of years ago, last year, trying to get him ready to go to the academy, and I kept working individual skills. And he was getting very frustrated with it. Well, why aren't we shooting the, the call course? Why aren't we shooting whatever? So you're not ready to shoot the call course because we're not up to where you need to be on these individual skills. And he just kept bucking me and bucking me and bucking me. Finally, I walked in, all right, we're going to shoot the call course. And of course, he failed miserably. And at that point, he was willing to listen and accept coaching. But it took that whole failure to get him to that point. Yeah. Okay. So the test shows you where you are. It's not what you, you don't practice for the test. You practice the skills that you're being taught. Dave Spalding makes that comment all the time as well. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, the areas. And when I trained with Ernest in 2018, I shot the, the fast, like 
two or three times in this this three day block. Uh, I think I won a hat or something one time. Uh, I'd never shot that exercise before, wow. ever, not one time. Uh, and I went out afterwards and filmed myself shooting it because I was like, "There's something. There's some little minor gap in my game here that I need to figure out what's going on." And I filmed it, and I went, "Oh." Oh, I see exactly what, so it, it, I used it to kind of identify a, uh-huh. uh, a, a, just a thing, right? Uh, so I, I, from that, I started breaking down the pieces of it and going, oh, okay, I need to work this a little harder. need to work this a little harder. Um, and then I found Justin Dial's five-yard roundup and just like, that's just my jam now. Man, it covers everything. Let's, um, and I, but you know, there was a time I was shooting the super test once a week and you know, I've still never shot a 300 on it. I shot a 299 a couple of times, but, uh, but then again, I was like, if I'm shooting a 299, I'm shooting over 90%. Why do I need to beat the life out of this anymore? Um, so yeah, I mean, and I don't like Tom's range master course. And at the time we shot the FBI course in there with it, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know why that, that changed, but it, it did later. Um, I, I had to call David Cagle. I'm like, dude, I, I've never shot the FBI course. Can you take me out there and run me through it? Like, okay, that's weird, but okay. He's like, well, what's the deal? I said, I just never shot it. I just wanted to see. Like, I'm not worried about the marksmanship, the reload, the movement, the this, mm-hmm. the that. I just want to know what the course is because I've never shot it before. So if I hear Tom say, okay, it's four rounds and three and a half seconds at five yards. Okay. I remember this. I've done this before mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, so that, but I, I wouldn't, I didn't worry about passing or failing. And I think if you're at a point that you go and you shoot those and you're worried about passing or failing, you might want to go to another class first. So yeah. some, some of it is good. Uh, my business partner, David, uh, you know, I took him to the range and said, Hey, you've never shot even a qualification standard. Let me see how your skill sets are. So I used the range master test. He shoots it, shoots like two points down on it. I go, all right, don't worry about this ever again. Just practice these skills. Well, well, we're going to have to shoot that in a couple of weeks. I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. That's you, you already have the cold skill level to do it. Move on. Um, you know, but I, I see it with a lot of things though, you know, and you know, I don't like, I don't cast judgment on people for doing chasing range trinkets or right. I don't, I don't care. It's like, go do that. If it keeps you engaged. And I wasn't trying to be negative towards all you guys that that reached out to me, most of which would thought it was kind of funny. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah uh, Georgia Public Safety Training Center teaches a firearms instructor course, mm-hmm. and you show up, and on the first morning after you fill out all the paperwork, they take you out on the range, and you are given an opportunity to shoot a ninety or higher on the state wall to quote, shoot your way into the course. 
Well, they used to furnish the ammunition for that. Someone finally figured out how much money was being spent on people who showed up to shoot into the instructor course who failed. So that was 30 rounds the state had wasted. I think you get them two opportunities. So now, if you're a candidate for the instructor course, you have to show up with 60 rounds of ammunition for your shoot-in. And if you should make it in, they give you all the ammo for the for the rest of the course. If there's any doubt as to whether or not you're going to pass the call course to shoot in, you shouldn't be at the course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Oklahoma's firearms instructor school is a 540 match 5 PPC. And you would be shocked. Because there's four positions at twenty at fifty, so you need four magazines. Be shocked at the number of dudes that show up that don't have four magazines. I'm not not knocking you. You didn't know any better or whatever. But uh, at the time I went, I was on the pistol team. I shot that course of fire every other day, sometimes two or three times a day, several times a week. Um. So I showed up and went, I, I'm going to be done by, it starts at nine. I'm going to be out of here at nine 30. Uh, and, and uh, we were all the pistol team guys that shot that course of fire shot, you know, five eighties plus on this, this course. Um, and then fast forward, the kind of the PPC thing kind of dives off. They still hold that as a standard, but every year, year over year, fewer and fewer people know how to shoot that. So I think there's going to come a time where because of the ammo expenditure to get people up to that level of proficiency, there'll probably be a, a shift in the shoot in standards. Uh, I kind of hope there is. Uh, and not because I'm not, don't have a fondness for PPC shooting, but I just think it's not as practical now as it was 15 years ago. And you know, back then they, they mandated you shoot a revolver. They figured, well, if you can shoot a revolver, you can teach these kids how to shoot autos. I mean, that was kind of their mentality, which is fine. Uh, now you can't hardly find a, you can't find a new revolver that's going to make it through that course. Maybe a new Colt or something or a new GP 100, but who's going to go drop 1500 bucks on a gun to shoot a course of fire. Sickos like you and me, maybe, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we're like, we get to go buy a new gun to go shoot this course of fire. When you get that, why'd you buy that? Well, I'm going to a school, yeah. needed that. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that whole shoot in part. And I think we give guys like a thousand rounds of ammo to figure it out. That's like their cap. You got like 90 days and a thousand rounds of ammo. Uh, and I kind of think that's that's good and bad, but some and some agencies just don't have the budget to put up that kind of ammunition, let alone the, the time investment and manpower. Good night. But I don't know. Those are problems that those are foreign to me now. I don't. <laughs> Would you like to tell everyone else one more time tonight that you're retired now? Oh, yeah. I retired May 31st. Pop, smoke, hit, eject, bye. It's a good thing we weren't playing a drinking game at the at this past weekend. Oh, with the retirement thing. 
Hey, did I mention I'm retired now? I don't. <laughs> what what uh, was that? It, Chris, one of the guys in the class, Chris, he's, we're talking about something. Yeah. And he's like, my agency. I was like, I don't care. I don't care about agencies yeah. anymore. I'm retired. And he goes, you? I go, yeah. And I, you didn't hear it? He goes, how did I miss that? I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, you've said it about 50 times this week. It's cool. Yeah. Enjoy it. But anyway. Mm -hmm. So what you got upcoming? Uh, so I got a podcast dropping here in a couple of days called Three Things I Couldn't Say When I Was a Cop. Uh, that'll be a pretty interesting one. <laughs> uh, for those of you that weren't incensed by the Pokemon BS, oh, wait, there's more. Uh, no, it's really not too bad. Um, it was just things like it would be uncouth to talk about. Um, and then I've got the belt. Belt company is still going strong. Still got EDC belt company. Uh, we're looking at adding a few more SKUs on some new buckles. I think you saw the prototype belt uh, out at, yeah. Uh, I'll be ordering one of those the instant they're available. Well, I appreciate that. That puts you on the adopt or retired cop uh, gold membership program. Uh, so still doing the podcast, still doing that, still doing Patreon. Uh, although I may not put controversial art articles as uh, non-paywall articles going forward, but um, I'm doing that. And then uh, Bulky and I are, are pretty booked solid right now for training classes. And uh, there's a couple more in the works, but uh, going to do a consulting gig for a company in Georgia, which I can't really talk about right now, but it's a company in Georgia make a lot of stuff um, here in about two weeks. And then Terre Haute, Indiana in August, probably going to take July off. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe have a retirement party. I didn't have one. I just left. So let's see. But yeah, I, I have not slowed down since I re retired at all. Things are just as busy as they were before. So, yeah, I have a trigger management class coming up in Cisco, Georgia, in September. Cisco's in the Dalton, Georgia, Chattanooga area, mm -hmm. uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee area. So, think I seventy five north of Atlanta before you get to Tennessee. Hang a right. Um, that's in. September, like latter part of September, and there are two people signed up for that right now, so it needs some more people. Here it goes. Go to firstpersonsafety.com and click on the upcoming classes, upcoming events tab, and you can get to that. Um, that's the only thing I've got scheduled through my private company. At this time, I am teaching at the Range Master Instructor Reunion in Whitehall, Arkansas in August, and I have actually fooled around with my leave I get 18 days of leave a year and I don't want to use it all or I did something and when I was calculating up okay I'm taking this many days to teach or whatever where I got off on the when the annual leave is allotted because it's so many hours each month I actually have to take a day off in July and actually be off for a whole day for a whole day I actually have to take a day off so that I don't give back leave time now Starting in August, so I got some stuff coming up that's going to start eating back into that total again. But uh, I'm going to take a day off in July and not work any of my three jobs. 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to work any of my three jobs that day. I have had, uh, in the last month, I've had one day that I had nothing. I was like, I, and it was one of those that I woke up and I checked my planner and my calendar, my, what my phone calendar. And I had nothing. And I went, I called Trish and I go, what am I going to do? She's like, do it, do whatever you want, man. It's like chill. So, uh, that lasted about 45 minutes. So I grabbed a range bag, went to the range, hmm. bought a Holosun 509T, mounted it, zeroed everything, did, and I went, I, I didn't even have to pencil this one in. I just went, you know, but it was just funny that I, I was so anxious that I had nothing to do. And what did I end up doing? Going and shooting anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, oh, I was going to say, yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, you got your trigger management class and then, uh, let's see uh, about I, the winter time. I don't have a whole lot going on till November revolver roundup is in November, September. I'm doing the guardian conference in OKC. I keep forgetting to man <laughs> mention that one. Uh, it's a guardian. Pat Rogers uh, revolver roundup at gunsight. And then I basically, after that, I kind of go into hibernation until TACCON kicks off. Um, just cause the, the weather in the Midwest is so sketchy that whole like November through about the first part of April that it just makes it tough to book a class, you know, cause you could have pouring rain or snow or sleet or a tornado. So uh, and then March kind of kicks uh, after TACCON, everything kind of kicks off for the year again. So, yeah, I do have Red Hill Range Reserve the weekend in October. I just haven't decided what I'm going to run that weekend yet. So, what about no, we'll what be, it will be some forthcoming. What about the Conclave? Uh, it will right now we're looking at doing it in Terre Haute and Oklahoma City next year, but I don't have dates yet. Okay. Uh, that's where we're looking at that going for next year. We just got to all three got to get together and look at each other's calendars and try to figure out dates and then see what's available with the ranges. Yeah, it's hard to get all three people together at the same time and tell them the date that range is available. But that's our plan right now is, is two next year in, in those locations. Oh, doing it twice? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's what we're looking at. Very nice. And All you know, right. based on the feedback we're getting, we're getting lots of people. I got matter of fact, I got a message today from somebody wanting to know about when it will be scheduled for, for next year. And um, you know, we just gotta gotta play all those things, weather, calendars, range availability, et cetera, all in. all gotta come together and make it happen. And we have Rattled on for quite some time tonight, so I guess we should probably end this one. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of hungry, <laughs> we, man. We talked a long time without any plan whatsoever. It's the mark of a true professional when you can ramble on about nothing and make it interesting, right? Well, we we hope it's interesting. We hope it's interesting. All right. Well, Brian, I appreciate you jumping on the play podcast tonight, uh, so that I would have an episode to drop tomorrow. 
And for all of you in the audience that will be listening to this, understand that your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.